but what does it mean to render visible the invisible as such? Unless the concept of the icon simply fails, is this not just a great deal of verbal clatter taking the place of a concept? The invisible as such could not render itself visible. No doubt if the invisible and above all the divinity of the gods or of God are understood in metaphysical terms of usia. Either usia becomes visible, sensible, intelligible, which for our purposes are one, or it does not. And the idol which itself produces that dichotomy can decide. It remains that usia, at least for theology, does not exhaust what can occur. Indeed, the conciliar definition, definitively confirming the theological status of the icon, bases the icon on hypostasis. He who venerates the icon venerates in it the hypostasis of the one who is inscribed in it. Reverence conveyed to the icon concerns in it the hypostasis of the one from whom the traced face arises. Hypostasis, which the Latin fathers translate by persona, does not imply any substantial presence, circumscribed in the icon as in its hypochimenon, and this as opposed to the substantial presence of Christ in the Eucharist. The persona attested its presence only by that which itself most properly characterizes it, the aim of an intention that a gaze sets in operation. The icon lays out the material of wood and paint in such a way that there appears in them the intention of a transpiercing gaze emanating from them. But, a superficial listener may object, in defining the icon by the aim of an intention, hence by a gaze, do we not rediscover exactly the terms of the definition of the idol? Absolutely, but in a nearly perfect inversion. The gaze no longer belongs here to the man who aims as far as the first visible, less yet to an artist. Such a gaze here belongs to the icon itself, where the invisible only becomes visible intentionally, hence by its aim. If man by his gaze renders the idol possible, in reverent contemplation of the icon, on the contrary, the gaze of the invisible in person aims at man. The icon regards us, it concerns us, in that it allows the intention of the invisible to occur visibly. Moreover, if man's gaze envisages the blind side of the first visible, or of its material consignment in the icon, he who sees it, sees in it a face whose invisible intention envisages him. The icon opens in a face where man's sight envisages nothing, but goes back infinitely from the visible to the invisible by the grace of the visible itself. Instead of the invisible mirror, which sent the human gaze back to itself alone and censured the invisible, the icon opens in a face that gazes at our gazes in order to summon them to its depth. One even must venture to state that only the icon shows us a face. In other words, that every face is given as an icon. For a face appears only inasmuch as the perfect and polished opacity of a mirror does not close it. That a face closes up implies nothing but its enclosure in a radiant mirror. Precisely, nothing closes a face by a mask more than a radiant smile. The icon alone offers an open face, because it opens in itself the visible onto the invisible, by offering its spectacle to be transgressed, not to be seen, but to be venerated. The reference from the perceived visible to the invisible person summons one to travel through the invisible mirror, and to enter, so to speak, into the eyes of the icon, if the eyes have that strange property of transforming the visible and the invisible into each other. To the invisible mirror where the gaze freezes succeeds the opening of a face where the human gaze is engulfed, invited to see the invisible.
The human gaze, far from fixing the divine in a figmentum as frozen as itself, does not cease, envisaged by the icon, there to watch the tide of the invisible come in, slack on immense visible shores. In the idol, the gaze of man is frozen in its mirror. In the icon, the gaze of man is lost in the invisible gaze that visibly envisages him.